Hello and welcome to the most effective advertising campaign in the world. Which is this campaign for the Master of Advertising Effectiveness, a six-week online program in partnership with Walk that'll give you a next-level understanding of the evidence-based principles of advertising effectiveness. The very same principles we've used to create this. The most effective advertising campaign in the world. Over the coming years, you'll experience a campaign that's perfectly budgeted and targeted over both the short and long terms and replete with emotion, distinctive assets, and most importantly, creativity. It will at some point result in you visiting our website, mae.academy, signing up, becoming a master of advertising effectiveness, and also becoming a piece of hard evidence that this is in fact the most effective advertising campaign in the world. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Work Podcast. I'm Kathy Taylor, U.S. Commissioning Editor for Work, and our guest today, very excited, is Dr. Marcus Collins, who's Head of Strategy at Wyden & Kennedy in New York and a Clinical Assistant Professor of Marketing at the Ross School of Business at the University of Michigan. I think many of you know who Marcus is, but if you don't, you are in for a treat. Uh, We're here today, though, to Uh, talk about his book. He just published the book For the Culture, The Power Behind What We Buy, What We Do, and Who We Want to Be. So welcome to the podcast, Marcus. Thank you so much for having me, Kathy. That was such a lovely introduction. Oh, thank you. So I guess first, I would just love to get a little background on your career and also kind of what led up to you deciding to write a book, which is not something you just do for the fun of it. It's an intense (laughs) process. It is a labor of love. That is definitely true. I'm a product of Detroit, born and raised in Detroit. Uh, and I always start that way because I feel like it's just an important part of uh, of who I am and 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 who I aspire to be. I didn't come from the world of advertising. I was an engineer undergrad, studied engineering because I did well in math and science. In those days, if you were had a pension for math and science and you were black, you're going to be an engineer. So that's what I, I was. But I realized I really wanted to be a songwriter, much to my parents' chagrin. So Don't when we I all. left, <laughs> yeah, exactly. So when I left university, I went into the music industry, did a startup where I was writing and producing music for a living, and that was going well until it wasn't because the music industry has a lot of dynamism to it. So I went back to school to figure out the disruption that was happening in music that we call digital. And I figured, you know, I'm an engineer with not a lot of business background, but was running a startup. I should probably better have a better understanding of business. So I went into went back to school at the University of Michigan again to study marketing. And from there, I went to go work at Apple, then moved to New York, ran digital strategy for Beyonce before coming into the world of of advertising. And I think, you know, when I think about the book, to your point, and it was nowhere on my bucket list that I was going to write a book. That was not in in my plan. It wasn't in it wasn't on my vision board that I was going to write a book. <laughs> but I tell you, you know, what I realized later into my career is that I found us using language over and over and over again without a lot of concreteness around what that language meant, i.e., let's get our ideas out in the culture. What's happening in culture? It needs to be informed by culture, 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 culture. And if you asked five people to define culture, you get 25 different answers. And they go, well, that's a problem. Because if we can't actually describe a thing or define a thing, then it's going to be really hard for us to operationalize it. It's going to be really hard for us to work together around it. And I had worked at agencies 
that uh, had a very close proximity to culture, like translation. Uh, I worked at agencies that wanted to get closer to culture. And I worked at agencies uh, that did a good job of impacting culture, but not consistently because there was no Rosetta Stone to describe what culture is and how we might be able to leverage it. So my, my thinking on writing a book was about helping practitioners whether you have a marketer in your title or not, if you have a you have a vested interest in getting people to move, then culture becomes a really powerful vehicle for you because there's no external force more influential to human behavior than culture, full stop. So that was the book I was going to write. And as I was writing this book for practitioners, whether you're a marketer or a clergy, uh, activist, manager, leader, politician, or the like, I realized that I was also writing this book for personal reasons, unbeknownst to me. Because it was like this revelatory thing that I realized that my earliest decisions as an adult that is coming from high school into college were being influenced by culture. The idea, culture being uh, the system of systems that come with it a set of conventions and expectations that are not only expected, but acceptable for people like us, right? There are these forces that influence how we believe or what we believe the artifacts we don, the behaviors that are normative and the language that we use, the alchemy of which make up our culture. And what I realized 20 some odd years later is that I was being influenced by the conventions and expectations of people like me when I decided that I needed to stay in engineering, though I wanted to be a musician. Even more so, I realized that my parents were being influenced by culture because what does it mean to be a good parent? Is you push your children, you you rear your children into a field, a career, into decisions that you think is going to be best for them, even though it's painful for them, even though it's not what they wanted in a you know very metacognitive level. And since I didn't have the language, I didn't have uh, the, the, the vernacular to describe what was happening to me other than my parents are bugging, I didn't have agency to do anything about it. And I was like, oh my goodness, almost so many of our decisions are influenced, one would even argue, governed by our cultural subscription, that there's a personal aspect here and a practical aspect. I didn't realize that until I was like a third of the way in the book. And I go, this might actually be helpful for people. <laughs> it's a roadmap to my own life. Thank you. Now, you know, one one thing that did occur to me as I was reading it is I it did sort of become personal in the sense that you could start to see so many of your decisions, maybe especially the big ones, but through the lens of what culture you wanted to be a part of. Like little me going to college in the middle of Pennsylvania and growing up outside New York, but going, no, that's where I want to be. I want to be a part of that culture. But you're also right that we throw around the term culture in advertising pretty much every day. <laughs> And yet tapping into that is A, really hard. And B, like, it seems as though there are just certain agencies, certain marketers really good at it, a lot who really try and are kind of bad at it. And I'm not talking about the big, you know, flaming, you know, things that bomb as much as just the stuff that's sort of meh. We see a lot of, lot of meh. So first, let's talk about how we or you in this book define culture, because that helps put some guardrails around it. And it kind of needs that, given how 
cavalierly we throw the term around. Absolutely. I couldn't agree with you more. So I look at culture through a Durkheimian lens. He's one of the founding fathers of sociology, Emil Durkheim. And he talks about culture as this system of norms, symbols, and values that demarcate who people are and what's expected of people like them. Right. Essentially, these are our uh, conventions and expectations that people like us do. Later, a gentleman by the name of Raymond Williams, one of the founding fathers of, of cultural studies, talks about culture as a realized signifying system. And I love that definition. First, because it's just beautifully stated, but also he's just way smarter than me. So I reduce that to say what culture really is. It is a meaning making system. It's the way by which we translate the world around us. And because of our translation comes a set of expectations and conventions of people like us, the beliefs that we hold, the artifacts that we don, the behaviors that are normative, the language that we use. And for marketers, of course, we go, yeah, I want to be a part of that because these expectations and conventions become the operating system that governs what people do. In fact, as you know, in the, in the book, Kathy, I say that I argue that consumption by its very nature is a cultural act. It's a way by which we make our culture material. It's an outward expression of inward beliefs, right? What we buy, what we wear, how we adorn ourselves, what we drive, the devices that we use, where we go to school, if we go to school, who we marry, if we marry, how we vacation, how we work, where we work, um, how we bury the dead, if we bury the dead, all of these decisions, all of these, these decisions that become a part of our daily lives, that become a part of our, the social fabric by which we navigate the world are informed by, and dare I say, governed by our cultural subscription. And the marketers who are able to tap into that, and let's just be a little bit more, I mean, like, let me say, let's get like, let's get concrete. Yeah. The marketers that are able to contribute to that are the ones who benefit from it. I have a good friend, um, Eric Hulkren, you know, he, he refers to this metaphor as like, participating in culture is like a car. You can either lead culture by contributing to the cultural conventions and expectations, the beliefs, the artifacts, behaviors, and language that are normative for a group of people. Or you can ride shotgun by participating in the conversation, right? Participating in the discourse, participating in the pre-existing conventions. Or you can follow culture, which is sucking tailpipe. Yeah, sucking don't tailpipe. Suck tailpipe. <laughs> I highlighted that, but I feel like most of it is sucking tailpipe, honestly. That's right, That's right because we follow it. We follow trends and who can blame us, right? Like, like, like I'm not, I'm, I don't want to point fingers at any one sort of brick in the edifice that is marketing communications or marketing writ large. But like, you know, we say things like, let's do some trend spotting. What are people wearing? What are people doing? What are people eating? What's going on in the market? Quote, unquote, what's going on in culture? And there's value in trend spotting, no doubt. Like, let's see what, what, are, what are manifestations of people's cultural subscription. But the challenge with trend spotting is that you're only looking at what people do it, where cultural exploration is looking beneath the surface. Why are they doing it? What are the beliefs and ideologies that are governing this manifestation that we see in the clothes that they wear, the food that they eat, and so on and so on and so on? But that requires a tremendous amount of intimacy. And also, it requires having a very concrete understanding of when we say culture, what do we mean? So we know what to look for. So now that we have some language, you know, and, and it, this mm -hmm. isn't, you know, I didn't invent this. This isn't like Walter White's blue meth. You know, I didn't, you know, <laughs> it, it already been there. It'd been there are people who were way smarter than me that just sort of try to translate it in a way 
that we can leverage it as practitioners, regardless of your marketer or, or activist or politician, but also to empower readers so that they can see it when they're experiencing it in the world and they have agency to navigate it, to say, oh, I know what's happening here. The conventions of this place, the beliefs and artifacts, behaviors and language of this place does not align with mine. And that's why I feel this angst. That's why I feel like I don't belong here. So I need to find a place that sees the world the way I do, shared beliefs, that their artifacts are, are reflective of the artifacts that I don because of what I imbued them with meaning, the behaviors that are normative and the language like we use. Having that level of understanding of the mechanisms, I believe, can be greatly empowering for, for us as practitioners and as individuals. It's interesting, too, how you put that at the beginning about marketers contributing to culture, i.e. certainly not sucking tailpipe, right? So what's, what's, a, what's a great example in your mind of a campaign that actually has contributed to the culture. So let's let's go back in time and then look at something much more contemporary. So I would argue, and I'm biased, of course, but like Nike done a fantastic job of contributing to the cultural conventions, the characteristics of athletes. In fact, gave athletes a nomenclature to sort of justify why they are committed as they are, why they do the work that they do, just do it. This is a manifestation of Nike's conviction, his ideology. It believes that every human body is an athlete. So the only thing keeping you from realizing your best athletic self is you. Therefore, you should just do it. Right. And the brand is the brand serves as a as an ally, as an advocate, as a provocator to push you to realize your best athletic self. And that language of like just do it. That's a part of our vernacular. That is a tagline, but it's a part of our vernacular. Why is that? Because it is a manifestation of our inward beliefs. So you now fast forward decades later and you take a brand like Beats by Dre. It's products, 2011. Right, everyone's wearing uh, innocuous white earbuds thanks to Apple, who I love. Huge fan of Apple. I used to work there, so I, I love the place. And then Beats by Dre have this belief about being heard, being seen, being bold. It creates the antithesis of that. Over-the-ear headphones that were a kind in, in kind to uh, those in the music studios because that's supposed to be representative of the fidelity of the of the sound, right? And those headphones. They weren't just used for their functional uh, means of listening to music. People were wearing them around their neck like accessory. It was like jewelry, right? It was a way of signaling who I was. They created a cultural artifact that signaled who you are, an outward expression of an inward belief. And then you take Beat by Dre even further to something much more near term, the execution of George Floyd on the streets in the streets of, of Minnesota. And while everyone's changing their logo to black, they're changing their their Instagram profile photo to black, and they're sort of everyone's copying, everyone's sucking tailpipe, and at best they're they're participating in the conversation, which is awesome. But Beats by Dre takes it one step further. Beats by Dre captures the ethos of the dominant black culture and communicates that in a film called "You Love Me, You Love My Culture." but do you love me? And it perfectly manifested the inward tension that many members of the predominant black culture felt and they expressed it in such a way that that ad 
that communication was no longer advertisement to get people's attention. It became cultural work. It became cultural production, much like Spike Lee movies are cultural production to reflect and express a group of people's take on race relations, much like uh, hip hop is an outward expression of a marginalized group of people who have reclaimed and reworked the position they play in the world, much like the Cosby show before we realized that Bill Cosby was a dirtbag, was a reflection of a slice of America that was underrepresented, that was marginalized, right? And people saw themselves in it. And then reflected their life based on that work. That spot became an example of that very thing. I never saw that on television. In fact, I never saw that from the brand. It flooded my newsfeed because people like me shared it as a way of expressing who they are. And that is unbelievably powerful. Yeah. And rare. Very rare. It's so rare. But it's so, I mean, and that's that's sort of the laughable part of it all. I mean, maybe that's irony. That like we all talk about culture, 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 but it's so rare relative to the amount of work that we put in the world that we actually contribute to culture. At best, at best, we participate in it. And that's awesome, by the way. Participating in it is phenomenal. If I could get more brands to do that, we'd be, we'd be a much better place. The zenith is contribution. But far, far, far too many of us are sucking tailpipe because we don't understand, A, what culture is, nor are we close enough in proximity to understand the conventions and expectations of these group of people. I mean, we still define them by demography and we wonder why we can't get close. We still put them in boxes. Gen Z, millennials, black folks, Hispanics, like they're all the same. Like there's this monolith of who they are and it's absolutely ridiculous. Yeah, it's kind of a shortcut and it doesn't really work. Because <laughs> you bypass no. a lot of things. <laughs> so that's right. Exactly. So given that this is so rare and given that this is work, what is your advice? And I'm going to back this into what you talked about in terms of intimacy and really going there to understand people. I mean, how do you as a marketer do that? You can't do it, I wouldn't think, in a focus group. Maybe that can be part of it. But this is a very, very different, deeper kind of uh, excavation you're going into, if you will. 1,000%. We have to study culture the way scholars study culture. And the scholars study culture, particularly anthropologists and sociologists, they study culture through ethnographies. Like it's been, ethnographies have been around since the 1700s. And scholars, academics have been studying culture through this lens forever. And we know what we know about all the cultures that we know about because of this sort of this sort of rigor, right? And what it means to do ethnographies, it's not self-reported data. It's not like, hey, let me ask some questions of you. You just answer those questions. It's not a survey. It's not a focus group. So we have to situate ourselves in the cultural contexts of these people and understand how they make meaning. And how do we do that? We quote unquote, go native. Like we have to become them. You want to know about cosplayers? Go to Comic-Con. Dress up in costumes. Eat where they eat. Hang out where they hang out. Enter the discourse. Right? Just have, Become one of them. And that requires getting closer. That requires radical, 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 radical intimacy, which is paradoxical because we have so much data you know, at our disposal, but yet we don't know our customers very well. 
right? A lot of it is because of our perspective. We look at them through demographic lens, at best psychographics, not cultural. And then secondly, is that we mistake information for intimacy. We think because I know your downloads, I know what you listen to, I know what you watch, I know who you are. But again, that's like trend spotting. I can see what you do, but I don't know why you do it until I go a step further, until I get closer. And the beautiful part of this is that we, we have ethnographies at our disposal. This is where we physically go out into the market, physically go out into the cultural contexts and observe people. And we become the research instrument. We become the translator, right? Because of our intimacy. And there's also online ethnographies. Yes, the netnography. Netnography, exactly. <laughs> yes. Okay, explain the netnography. <laughs> yeah, so Rob Kozinets, uh, he is a... Uh, uh, He's a scholar uh, and a professor at USC. He coined the phrase netnography in the 90s. When social technology forms, blogs, and then social networking platforms became these environments where people will congregate with people like themselves, communities will congregate, and they would enter discourse with rhetoric that would help them make meaning. And of course, culture is the meaning-making system, right? And how do we make meaning? We make meaning through our discourse, through our through the text that we exchange, through the conversations that we have. So uh, Rob Kozinets, he would study these cultures of consumption, these these collectives of people within some some context through forums and blogs. And he would actually go out, for instance, one of his most famous works, he was studying the market, marketplace dynamics among burners, people who go to Burning Man. So he spent years on forms. He was on email threads. He interviewed them. He went to Burning Man several times to understand how these people make meaning. And this notion of a netnography is an online ethnography, but you have the fortunate benefit of unobtrusively observing how people make meaning, how people create culture among themselves. And also you get to do it with a massive, massive uh, sampling of exchanges. And that's always been sort of the dean to ethnographies that, oh, they're deep, but they're not wide. They're not like a great sample size. But with the netnography, you know, you can go very, 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 very deep and have a very large uh, span of folks. In fact, my, my doctoral research, I did an ethnography studying how brands and branded products spread within the cultural context. In the case of my research, I looked at hip hop and I used all Reddit data. I observe people in these subreddits, these communities that have cultural characteristics, beliefs, artifacts, behaviors, and language that are demonstrative or, or expected of people like them. And I watch how they made meaning. And the beautiful part about it for researchers is that you have a moderator who cleans the data for you. It's a beautiful thing. Yeah, thank you. No, but well, Reddit, Reddit is really fascinating and I, I don't think it gets enough attention sometimes. The last podcast I did actually was about five modern movements that were sort of synthesized by Reddit from looking at all of its its groups. And the thing that was really interesting there, and it, it, it did come up to me while I was reading your, your book, was that I think the central thing they wanted to get away from in, in kind of breaking down these movements was trending topics, right? Which maybe gets maybe gets a little off point of what you're talking about. But the but the thing is that if you're chasing culture, I think as a brand you can end up with trying to insert yourself in trending topics all day. And 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 the and the point the point Reddit was making was that that is not the point that you've got to look at the bigger movements going on. 
I think that's so on topic, actually, because of our our myopic view of what culture is. We think of culture as a shortcut for popularity. So we look at what's in the headlines, right? And we treat our briefs like they're Law and Order SVU, ripped right out of the pages of the headlines, right? Like that becomes sort of the brief for us. Uh, but the idea to 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 your point is that the things that happen in the headlines that are trending topics, if you, if you if you will. What they really are is exogenous shocks to the system. They are things that happen outside of what's normal. And therefore, we discuss them. And we go, hey, Kathy, did you see what blah, blah, blah did? You go, I know, crazy, right? And I go, I know. See, I was thinking the same thing. And as we start talking, we collectively make meaning. We decide if it's good or bad, evaluation. And then we decide if it's acceptable for people like us, legitimation. And as a result, we have now effectively, efficiently negotiated and constructed what people like us do. Reddit allows us to do that at a massive, massive clip. And these people who are in these communities, they're there because they believe, because they they self-identify. Passion, passion, passion. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And and I talk about this in a book. Like I love, you know, I love I love the word passion. Because passion comes from the religious text and it means to suffer, like the suffering of the Christ, like the passion of the Christ, like suffer. That's right. So to your point, these people are willing to suffer for these things that they care so very deeply about. And because they care so very deeply about it, not only do they adhere to the cultural characteristics of these communities, but they also are predictive of what people like them will do. So extrapolate that out to work extrapolate that out to, to marketers, our job as marketers is to get people to adopt behavior, full stop. That is our job. Drink this, don't drink that. Go here, don't go there. Buy his shoes, not his shoes. Uh, vote for her, not for him. Uh, subscribe to this new letter, not to that one. Watch this movie, not that one. Everything we do is in an effort to get people to move. There is no force, no external force more influential to our behavioral adoption than culture. Why? Because we rely on these systems to demarcate what people like us ought to do so that we stay in good standings with our people. So understanding this for a marketer is unbelievably powerful because it's going to increase the likelihood of having greater marketing effectiveness. And that's what work focuses on, effective marketing. And what makes marketing effective? Does it get people to move? Exactly. So I'm going to bring up an example you have in the book that's probably not your favorite, but I think it's a great one in that it really points out also how culture changes and how you have to be on top of that. And that doesn't mean trending topics again, but you have to be aware of how things morph over time. And that's the Sprite campaign. You were not involved, as I recall, in Obey Your Thirst, but you were involved in a in a later one. So if you'll let us um, allow you to uh, talk about what is your not your favorite campaign of your career, let's do that. You'll get to talk about your favorite campaign of your career later in the podcast. Are we good? Sure. That sounds great. Uh, that's a great compromise. <laughs> so uh, you're right. I did not work on Sprite's epic Obey Your Thirst campaign, but it was one of the first times I can remember watching a TV ad and seeing myself and saying, oh, they talking to me, right? This is the 1990s. Sprite decides to double down on hip hop. 
and hip hop as a community of people that have a set of cultural uh, conventions and expectations that govern what people like them do. And I was a part of that. And when I saw that first spot, I was just like, oh my goodness, they just, they got it. They just got every nuance. Their proximity and intimacy to hip hop was just beyond. And that campaign ran for like a decade and they never missed a beat. Right. Like when they moved up to hip, when they moved up to, to basketball with Grant Hill, never missed a beat. Kobe Bryant, never missed a beat. Just spot on. But then Sprite lost its way, stepped away from that and it lost its way. And now I'm in advertising and the agency I'm working for, we get a brief to help revive and give new life to Obey Your Thirst. And I'm thinking, this is a dream come true. You get to work on your favorite one of your favorite campaigns good night you can't tell me nothing so i'm excited about it and we get to work for it uh, against it but what we didn't realize i would argue say we did realize it we just didn't have our human hat on when we're in the office right which is what we often do right you know we take our human hat off we get into the office and we do some advertising do some marketing and then we walk out of the office and put our human hat back on right but i always tell my students look bruce wayne and batman are the same people they just have different outfits Different contexts, but they're the same people, you know. But we don't do this. So, and and I'm I'm raising my hand saying I didn't do this either. While we were going to revive Obey Your Thirst, the word thirst in the 90s meant something that you were passionate about, something that you were driven against, something that mattered so very much to you. And to to obey your thirst was actually a, a declaration of going after what mattered most. And it was a largely uh, viewed as a positive thing. But by 2012, when uh, before we got this brief, the word thirsty had changed. It was no longer about going after what you were passionate about. I mean, you were actually pathetic, desperate. And if that weren't enough, if you were like, well, I didn't know that was happening in the streets. The biggest song of the summer was a song called Mercy by Kanye West, old Kanye, Pusha T, Two Chains and Big Sean. This was the song of the summer. And the chorus of the song says, okay, Lamborghini Mercy, your chick, she's so thirsty. And then some very unsavory words that come after that. So thirst no longer was a good thing. But did that stop us? Oh, no, no, no. We're advertisers. We're marketers. So we went on ahead and reframed Obey Your Thirst with this idea that we called Only for the Thirsty. And when we launched this campaign only for the thirsty the revitalization of obey your thirst the internet let us have it Whew, they let us have it they were like you hear that you thirsty so-and-sos sprite said get yourself something to drink it was not good and so much so that the ad got pulled very very quickly after it it aired um and we were unceremoniously uh seeing the uh, shown to the front door we lost that business shortly thereafter Right. And and it's it is painful. And and even though you're right, it is not a great day. It was not a highlight of my career for sure. I certainly learned so very much. Yeah, that's what I wanted to ask. What did you learn? What can people learn from that? Because advertisers do it a lot. Yeah, culture is always changing. It always changes because there are always exogenous shocks to the system that force us to enter discourse and change things. And, and negotiate and construct what things mean. And those exogenous shocks to the system are things that happen in politics, the new products that come out, new albums that are released, new movies that come out, quotes that are said from people that that that, that are out in the world, they're, they're crimes that take place. All of these things happen around us and we go into our communities and go, 
are we cool with this? Are we doing this? And its meaning changes. And if you aren't close, if you won't have, if you don't have great proximity, then you will miss the meaning, right? Like uh, Snoop said it this way. I keep a blue flag hanging on my backside, only on my left side. Yeah, that's the crip side. If you don't know that a blue flag hanging out of someone's back pocket means that that person is affiliated with the crip organization, a street gang, then you go, that guy is really color coordinated. And that sounds ridiculous for me to say out loud. Yet last year, a third of the country watched Snoop Dogg crip walk on national TV at the Super Bowl, Super Bowl. <laughs> halftime game. And my mother was like, I just love that little dance he's doing. I was like, mom, he is set tripping. He is clanking his gang on national television. But she was none the wiser because she didn't have proximity. And the same thing goes with marketers. When we don't understand the cultural conventions, the beliefs, the artifacts, behaviors, and language that govern what people do because of what it means through their meaning-making lenses, then we increase the likelihood of us being out of sync like we were with obey your thirst. Because the truth of the matter is that everything around us, none of it is inherently meaningful. Like it doesn't mean anything inherently, right? It's translated through our cultural lenses as, as uh, Raymond Williams would say, it's the meaning making system, but which we translate the world. That's why for some, a cow is leather, for others, it's a deity. And for some, it's dinner. Which one is it? It's all of them depending on who you're talking to and how they make meaning. So for marketers, we have to get close and not just, hey, I'm gonna visit you every every uh, six months or every year we're gonna do a study. No, 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 you have to be a part of that community while they're constantly making meaning and, and, and the cultural characteristics of the community continues to evolve. You gotta be there with them or you'll find yourself out of sync like we were. Yeah, that's a great lesson. But let's turn to, now you get your favorite campaign. This is your moment to show just how all of this is translated into a campaign that you've worked on that you've felt really hit the cultural sense well. Yeah. You know, I'd say my favorite campaign would have to be, I mean, it's so hard because it's like, it's like choosing which children you love the most. Let's just say for the sake of today, today, right now, my favorite campaign would probably be the Brooklyn Nets, moving them from New Jersey to Brooklyn. And what I, what I appreciate so much about that opportunity is that so rarely do you have a chance to launch a new franchise for uh, a league, especially the NBA. But there was so much opposition that move that we we're able to subvert that. And essentially, you know, look, any any export out of New Jersey into Brooklyn, into New York writ large, will always be met with some resistance, right? Like, you know, New York and New Jersey, not no. good. No, and and like New Jersey, what was it? There, uh, the hockey team, the Devils, like had they had their Stanley Cup parade in the parking lot at Giant Stadium. I mean, no, no. There are only so many things that New York will suffer from from New Jersey. Maybe it's uh, Bon Jovi and Bruce Springsteen. Bruce Springsteen. And, That's about it. And we'll take Lauren Hill, maybe. Okay, okay, I'll I'll grant that. But there's just a lot of resistance. So. Moving that team over was going to be a challenge. And the brief we got from Brett Yarmark, who was running the organization, he said, I want the Nets to be to Brooklyn what the Knicks are to Manhattan. Whew, that's a tough feat. Not only that, we're building this arena. They're building this arena that we're going to have tremendous impact, negative impact even, on the Atlantic Terminal of Brooklyn with this, this, uh, this historical area of Brooklyn. People were boycotting this team coming. And now all of that, plus the team wasn't great. So the value proposition of the product sucked. 
and the context in which we're bringing this thing in was 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 not glowing. So we said, all right, how do we do this thing? Conventional wisdom is like, where's the differentiator that makes this thing compelling for people to consume? So we said, we said, well, let's start with the people, the Brooklynites. Well, what do we know about Brooklynites? What do we know about the conventions of what it means to be a Brooklynite? They are extremely proud. The most proud borough of the five, right? Oh, oh yeah. And they used to have their own baseball team and they haven't for 50, 70 years, whatever it is. Yeah. But it was like 1957 just broke their heart, left and went to, to California. So the Bro- Brooklyn was left without, right? Even though they're super proud of themselves. So we thought, well, let's stoke Brooklyn pride. Let's do that. Well, how do we do that? Well, we can do that by bringing people together, bringing Brooklynites together and the Brooklyn Nets would be a receipt of their resonance, a receipt of identity. It is a manifestation of their of, of their subscription, who they are. So how would we do that? So we I brought a page from Edward Bernays' propaganda theory, which Edward Bernays, one of the founding fathers of propaganda, says you can unite a people by declaring an enemy of the state. Unfortunately for us, there was an inherent enemy to, to Brooklyn, and that is Manhattan. So the entire campaign was about stoking this innate rivalry between the two, Manhattan and Brooklyn, such that people would buy Brooklyn Nets gear and ultimately become Brooklyn Nets fans fans as a way of signaling their identity. And that campaign was massively powerful. I mean, even today when I see people wearing Brooklyn Nets uh, gear, I'm like, you're welcome. No, I'm joking. I'm kind of joking. <laughs> I'm definitely serious. But I think you know the, the, the powerful thing to me is twofold. One, to be able to leverage theory and apply it, right? Apply theory, which is sort of the not sort of exactly where I sit in the world as a practitioner, an academic practitioner, bridging the academic practitioner gap, taking theory and applying it and see it happen, which is massively powerful. And without tons of media, by the way, which is designed for it. The other part was a massive learning for me some 10 years later, that while that thing was super successful and uh, very effective. I didn't pay mind to the impact that the work had on the community. Yeah, because it's a lot bigger than the Nets. Yeah. I mean, and there's this impact. I mean, there are people who lost their homes. There are small businesses that went out of business. Like we had a the the intervention that we had on that in that uh that neighborhood was massive. And in some cases good, in some cases bad. And what it what it what it becomes a reminder for me which is why I always think of it as one of my favorites, is that while it was successful, there was also a place of failure there that I did not think about a core stakeholder in the Brooklyn narrative. And those are the people who are in the line terminal. And as a marketer today, I'm always thinking about how do I impact more than just the consumer? I say that with, with big air quotes, the company to which we have a fiduciary responsibility to help them be effective, but also the community in which these things reside, the context in which these things reside. Because having a win that only helps the company and the consumer, I think is only two thirds of, of the battle. If we're, not, if we're not impacting the community writ large, then I think that we've probably fallen short. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I don't think a lot of people don't think that way. So I'm glad there are those who do. So I have other questions I would love to ask right now, but I I realize if I have to cut any of this beautiful stuff, it will make me cry. So I'm not going to go on to other uh, other parts of the podcast because we've we've had we've had quite a robust discussion here. This has been fantastic. And um, I just wondered what some of what any of your 
kind of last thoughts might be about why marketing practitioners, even though I know it's not just meant for them, might benefit from taking a, a good read through this uh, this wonderful book you've uh, you've dropped on us. <laughs> Thank you so so very much. It's so kind of you. I, I think it, it goes back to the earlier point that our job as marketers are to get people to move. Like that's our job. And if we want to be better at our job, then we have to understand people. Herein lies the tragedy of the age, as W.E.B. Du Bois puts it. Not that men are poor because we all know something about poverty. Not that men are wicked because what is good. Not that men are liars because what is truth. Nay, that we know so little about mankind. We don't know people. And as a result, we tend to, to slip up when it comes to activating people. And what does it mean to know people? It means we have to be much more empathetic. And empathy is about adopting the lenses of other people. Well, what does that mean, Marcus? It's about understanding how people make meaning, how they translate the world around them. And the better we do that, not only will we be better at our jobs, right, the, the, the functional thing that we do, but I also think that we'd be better human beings, truly, which is why I say this book is a people book, not a marketing book. This is about understanding people. Because if we realize that people uh, subscribe to different cultural identities that come with it a different set of lenses by which they make meaning, we then realize that our worldview is not objective, it's subjective. And therefore we go, I'm not the bearer of the ultimate truth. My truth is mine, but Kathy's truth is hers. And if I am to understand Kathy, I have to understand her truth. That is how she makes meaning of the world. I think if we do that, and maybe this is kind of utopic, uh, kumbaya-ish, but I think if we do that, I think that we'll be a much more civil world, right? So this is beyond just being better practitioners. I think this is about being better people as well. Yeah, there's a lot of things going on, obviously, in the world where actually trying to understand somebody else's point of view would probably be path towards solutions, yeah. A path, not the destination, but Exactly. And I and you don't have to agree with everyone. You go, look, I mean, what it what it gets to is from saying the way that person sees the world, throw people crazy, which is what we do. Like we abide by our, our own conventions. And anybody who doesn't abide by that, we go, they crazy, they wrong. And they're saying the same thing about us. So the idea is just kind of getting away from our objective uh frames and go, oh. They see the world this way because of these beliefs and ideologies that they have been taught, right? It's not because they're bad people per se. They just see the world differently. And so long as your worldview does not mean my oppression, then I, okay, I can get that, right? Like we can, we can be more tolerant of each other, right? And that's probably the lowest uh, barrier, right? The, the lowest river, the lowest rung of success is just tolerance. But even further, it's like, you know, we just have just greater civility. Go like, ah, they're not crazy. Just see the world differently. I don't agree with it, but like, I get it. Thanks so much, Marcus. Love talking to you today. Again, Marcus's book is For the Culture, The Power Behind What We Buy, What We Do, and Who We Want to Be. It is available on Amazon. And uh, I'd also like to thank all of you for listening to The Work Podcast and hope you tune in again soon. Subscribe to The Work Podcast on any of your favorite platforms. And thanks for listening. Thank you.